courage to come into a, a place of people that you might not know most of the folks who are sitting around you, and you may not have been in a service that worships the Lord like this, but we are grateful you're here with us, and our prayer is not, not only that you would feel welcomed by people, but that you would meet with the living God and be encouraged by His Spirit. So welcome if you're new with us. Hey, we have a, a Memorial Day picnic coming in a few weeks, and everyone's invited, whether you're here for the first time, whether you've been coming for 20 years. So put that on your calendar uh, at the end of May, on Sunday at the end of May. Um, our sermon series is through four chapters in the book of Luke, Luke 11 through 14. We've been there this spring so far, and we're asking the Lord in this series, we're saying, Lord, please teach us. Teach us. We are your we are your disciples. We have committed. Those of us who are here who have committed to following the Lord, we're saying, we need you to show us the way to live out. You, you have sent your church on mission, and we need you to show us the way. We need you to teach us how to live on the way. We need, us, we need you to show us what it looks like to be a disciple on mission. And so far we've seen, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us what it looks like to obey your commands, which are good. Teach us how to respond when you work, to respond to your kingdom. And then last week, Jay preached, Lord, teach us to see when Jesus is here. Teach us to see his light and to respond. And so today, we're, uh, as we go verse by verse through these chapters, we've come to six woes of judgment. How's that for a Mother's Day sermon? Six woes of judgment against religious leaders in the first century. I promise that wasn't intentional. Uh, and and there's, there's no hidden meaning there. But it, it is a good reminder as a church that we don't function on the Hallmark calendar. Uh, for Let it be said. So anyway, but even though these are hard words of Jesus, we're going to see something that's needed for a disciple who loves Jesus and cares deeply about participating in his kingdom. This is for all of us, not just any mothers in the room. This is, um, Jesus shows us what it looks like to participate in the spirit-led mission of God's kingdom. And so we have a larger passage today, but I'd like us to stand, and you don't have to follow. If, if it helps you to follow along, please do so, but otherwise, just listen. There is great value in hearing God's word read God's word declared. Um, his word is our truth and our anchor. And so we are in the book of Luke, beginning with verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 37, through the beginning of chapter 12. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. And so he went in and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed Jesus didn't first wash before the meal. And then the Lord said to him, Now now listen, you Pharisee, clean, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside of you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of all your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice 
and love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Now, one of the experts in the law who was there listening to this answered Jesus and he said, Teacher, you know, when you're saying these things, you're insulting us too. And Jesus replied, well, let, let me tell something to you. Um, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, but you yourselves won't lift a finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. And so you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, you build the tombs. But because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill, others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. After saying all this, Jesus went outside, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Now listen to this in chapter 12. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. But Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, and he said, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. There is nothing hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn our attention to this word that you've spoken, not only then, but now, we pray that you would be at work. We pray if there's any repentance that needs to be granted, that you would grant it, not a human sorrow that uh, just feels bad, but a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Father, we pray that you would open up eyes, open up hearts, that you would speak Lord Jesus, and we turn our, our uh, soul, our, our attention to you, God, that you might speak. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So when we came to chapter 12, verse 1, and the crowds were pressing into Jesus, hungry to hear more of him or to see more of his action, see more of his miracles, Jesus stops the, the pressing, the, the trampling crowd, and he turns his attention first to his disciples.
because he doesn't want them to miss this moment. This is an important moment. And he says to them, be on your guard. Pay close attention. Watch out. Be on your guard. Against what? Did you catch that? Against what? He had just skewered these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? Laid them bare publicly. Was it against them? Are they supposed to watch out for these people? Against the hypocrites? Is he asking us to watch out for hypocrites? The warning is against the sin pattern. Hypocrisy. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, the teaching, the example of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That's the warning. What is hypocrisy? Two faces, right? A, dual, a duality within, where we're in conflict between what we say and, how, and, and what we believe, how we act and what's on the inside. It was a word used for actors on the stage. You may have heard that before. It's rare to find a quality that's so universally derided as hypocrisy. Is it not? I mean, who loves hypocrisy? What happens in your heart when you read about a corrupt policeman or a thieving financial advisor or a, or a scheming immoral pastor? What happens in your heart? Right? There, we, we see hypocrisy a little. It leaves a bitter taste in our mouths. We don't like it. But let's acknowledge here right at the beginning that the danger of hypocrisy is in our midst, too. It's, it's not just an out there problem for those people. Right? This, is, this, is a, this is not an us-them issue. It's a matter of the human heart. Hypocrisy is a threat to our souls. We have to start there. Hypocrisy is a threat to our souls. We're not so different. We're not so enlightened. I brought with me a special tool. It's a hypocrisy finder. <laughs> right? It's guaranteed to work. If you want to use it afterwards, it's simple. The directions are simple. It, it hurt this week to uh, see, continually see my own hypocrisy in my parenting. Yelling down the stairs, don't yell up the stairs if you need me. <laughs> Come up and talk. Uh, and worse thing, and more sober thing, in my relationships, in my habits. We, we can see hypocrisy. If we're honest with ourselves, we can see hypocrisy daily. And there is another one who sees us. There is one who knows every thought, every motive, every whispered word in the inner room, everything that is hidden, he knows. And so let's, let's get off of our thrones and deal with hypocrisy. Because Jesus says, be on your guard against hypocrisy. Not simply because hypocrisy is, is damaging and hurtful to our soul, but because hypocrisy poses sincere risk to the mission of the church itself to the mission of the kingdom. It wasn't only religious elites or the powerful or the influential who could fall into this trap. Jesus laid them bare publicly, but he turns to his 12 and he says, you too, 
be on guard. Hypocrisy is an impartial evil. It'll travel wherever it's welcome. It'll make its home in us. It, it impedes, it, it's an obstacle to the mission of the kingdom. Imagine you are running a business, a bakery, for instance, and, and you have employees, and your employees constantly scoffed at the, at, the, at the time they were supposed to be there and the time they were supposed to leave. They constantly scoffed at the, uh, the policies that you set in place. They stole from the register. They chased off customers with rude words. And, and s- Would they last long in your business? No, of course not. Jesus is saying that in the kingdom, hypocrites are like these unacceptable employees because hypocrisy obstructs the kingdom. It stifles God's word. It neglects justice. It weighs people down so that it's difficult for them to even enter into God's kingdom. This is a danger for us to, because it not only is a danger for our soul, but it, it's an obstacle in the kingdom. So be on our guard against hypocrisy. So what's the alternative? Right, Jesus never asks us to put off something, to stop something, without giving us something to put on, to take on by the Holy Spirit. So what is the alternative? Jesus' teaching isn't only a matter of no, 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 but yes, yes to this. So what is the alternative to hypocrisy? As we put it off, what do we put on? And, and I'll admit, it's not laid out specifically in this text. He's teaching through a negative example. But as he tears down this duplicity this of hypocrisy, what he's doing is he's laying the groundwork for a God-centered integrity. He's drawing us, Jesus is drawing us towards integrity. What is integrity? It stands at the opposite pole, does it not, from hypocrisy? There's no one English word that that matches with the Greek and the Hebrew when the Bible uses the word integrity. But, But when you see integrity in the Scripture... Just know that behind that is something of a wholeness, something of a, of a completeness, a singleness of belief and action inside and out, a whole person, a wholeness. So, Lord, teach us integrity. That's our cry this morning. As a church family, teach us integrity, not just in our minds, but in our, in our hearts, not just awareness of it, but a response of integrity. Because I believe Jesus shows us in this passage how to move towards a God-centered integrity as well and how we move towards hypocrisy. There is a habit, there is a driving force of the soul that creates in us either hypocrisy or God-centered integrity. What is it? What is the driving force of the soul? It's what we love. What we love our desires, our affections, they shape us. They shape us inside and out. This is simply an observation of human soul, all of us. Whether someone is a believer or not, we, what we love shapes us for good or for ill. Think about it. Think about what you love and how that has shaped you. And not just in the physical realm, but in in character traits and otherwise. I love excellence and competence. And there may be some good qualities there, but it shapes impatience. 
it shapes being hard on myself or being hard on other people? Do we love stability? That, that creates potentially a fear of change, a low risk tolerance, a penchant for routine. Do we love sports? What does that do? It makes, it makes us see the world through the eyes of competition and performance. It makes us interact with people off, of, off the playing field the way you may have interacted with them on the playing field. Do we, do we love success? We're, we're then ambitious. We work long hours. We're regularly looking to get ahead, not content with today. What we love shapes us. What we value, what we treasure shapes who we are. We, we, we love lots of things. So we're, we're shaped for good and for ill. And what we need to hear today is that some things we love give birth to hypocrisy. And some things give birth to integrity. The loves that birth hypocrisy will ultimately divide us and destroy us. But the loves, what people of a God-centered integrity love bring wholeness and purity and life to our souls. So this passage contrasts what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law loved and what Jesus encourages his disciples to love. And do you know what? We can learn to love. We can learn to love what is true and right and noble as a gift of God by his Holy Spirit. Right? He, he transforms us and he can teach us to love what is good and true and right. That's good news. And so we're saying, Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us. And so as we look through this passage, we'll, we'll see three different loves that give birth to integrity. Right? Three different loves that Jesus is saying form integrity in us. And the first is that people of integrity love God first. People of integrity love God first. They place God first, ahead of all things. As we think about what it means to be disciples and enter the kingdom, let's not lose God's fundamental call to us. Love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Love me. That's not a command. It, it's a gift. It's an invitation and a command. An invitation into a relationship with God that of an ordering of our lives that makes sense. God is saying, this is the way of life that makes sense. This is the most vital love toward creating integrity in us. Because when we love God first, our lives become unified. Our, our lives, uh, inside and out, they begin to match up how they were created to be. When we love God first, how they were designed. It's not an accident that God's first command to Israel was, have no other gods before me. You know the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Why? Because I am your first love. It's here that the process of redemption begins, as you're loving me. Loving God first puts, puts things in order. It's like the mathematician who comes to a settled conviction that despite what the world around him is saying, the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. Aha, says Galileo, right? The, the, now all these astronomical quirks that I'm seeing, with, with, that I'm observing, all these mathematical theories that seem to be pointing this way, they actually make sense when the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. It, it put in order the universe for Galileo. 
loving God first is, is like a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough that makes our lives make sense. It puts, puts the world into order. People of integrity love God first. But in our passage, did you notice that we see another love has taken hold? Jesus makes it clear in hard words. Instead of loving God, there, there are religious leaders here who love the system. They, they had replaced the personal living God with a measurable, defined system. And when disciples of Jesus love anything else first, even a system to get to God, we step off of the path of life. We step onto a place of, that is leading us to corruption and death. So what's going on here? Where's the evidence that the religious leaders were looking or were loving a system and not a living God? Look at the text. Look at right at the beginning, verse 39, and look at what the Pharisees noticed. Jesus didn't wash his hands before a meal. The man was surprised. The word is really aghast. He was aghast. He was amazed. Jesus didn't wash his hands before the meal. Here's this miracle worker, this one who teaches with authority, healing the sick, and yet he doesn't wash. And he's dumbstruck with, with this reality. It doesn't seem like such a big deal to us, but they love their system more than the Messiah in their midst. What's going on here, right? Why is this such a big deal? Why does this even get this guy's attention? The religious culture of the day had established a system built on top of clean and unclean Old Testament laws. They had built a, a structure on top of the law that was supposed to improve upon God's law and help them to be even more holy than God was calling. This wasn't prescribed in the law. It was a system of man. They wanted to master a method for achieving holiness. If God says, do this, I'm going to do this. I'll show you how great I can be through ritual cleanness. And so Jesus ignores the system. That gets their attention. Yeah, I'm sure he washed plenty of other times. We don't know. He ignores the system here, and he, he gets their attention. What is, he, what is he doing? Is he letting my boys off the hook, right, so they don't have to wash their hands before dinner, right? Is this a Messiah-given license for dirt? Not on Mother's Day. <laughs> no. Sorry, no, this, but this isn't a matter of soap and bacteria, right? This, this, this is one who is, who is clean inside and out, one who is holy, taking a stand and exposing the false power and the false mindset of the Pharisees of the day. So do you love the Lord or do you love the system that you have built up to get to the Lord? And how do you know the difference? What do you look for if you're answering that question? Do I love the Lord? Am I looking only at public signs? Or am I looking internally as well? I wonder where we're tempted to replace our love for God for a, a defined system. What, with a technique, perhaps? Um, here's how I'm going to keep my thoughts pure. Here's how I'm going to avoid wicked things or people. Here's how I'm going to make good things happen in my life. Here, here's how my kids are going to grow up to love Jesus. Here's how I'm going to pray more effectively. 
Now, there may, there, there may be nothing wrong with actually taking steps and structure and certain systems in place for those things. But what is wrong is trusting and loving my system ahead of the Lord, the living God who leads us and calls us. Let's check our hearts. Are we, do we love a technique? Do we love the system? Do we love a structure? Are we loving the presence of God, the true and living God? Let's check the hidden places, what we've spoken in the dark, what we've whispered in the, in the inner room. Because less, unless the inside of us matches what's on the outside, it doesn't really matter too much what's happening on the outside. That's not what the Lord takes joy in. God is the God of both. Jesus teaches that the hypocrite loves the system that's manageable and 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 uh, definable, but God loves uh, the, the integrity. And people who love God build up an integrity within them. So, Lord, teach us. Teach us to love you. Lead us to love you. Lord, teach us integrity. That's the first love. It's the, it's the most important one that defines the others. The second, as a result of loving God, a second love, is that people of integrity love truth. Love truth. Remember, our loves shape us, right? When we love the system or, or when we love God, we're being formed either way. Our loves shape us. So if, if we love truth, what, how is that shaping us? What's happening in us? If we, love, if we love God, we will love truth and we will be unafraid to live and speak the truth because truth is from God. Right? All truth is from God. Truth won't allow us to be in a double standard. Truth shines a light on those hidden places. On those, in those places we're trying to hide, truth shines the, the flashlight right there. Truth erases the need for us to worry about getting trapped in a lie or a story because we're not lying. We're speaking the truth. We're not hiding our sin. We, we confess freely. Truth shines a light. And so when we love God and we love his truth, we can walk out into the light. We don't have to hide anymore. We, we, can, we can confess our sin and our struggles because we know who is in the light. God is there. We can live free from guilt. We can live free from shame, free from the accusations of others. Loving God's truth births in us integrity. Do you see how that takes away a double, doubleness, a duality inside of us? We, we're free. We don't have to hide. We can confess. Instead of truth, though, Jesus says the teachers of the law, what did they love? They didn't love truth. And what are we tempted to love? Appearances. What things looked like. Appearances. And this was really shocking for them. Do you notice how at the end of all this, they, they go out and they determine how they're going to get Jesus? This is shocking and hurtful to them because they thought they were the gatekeepers of truth in those days. But Jesus says, actually, by loving appearances, by loving systems, they're suppressing truth. They're putting up a wall so that people can't actually see and enter in to the life of God, into his truth. Even though they had the greatest prophetic revelation of all, greater than Abel, all the way to Zechariah and all the prophets in between, they had Jesus himself in their midst. They resisted and they fumbled God's truth. 
no wonder Jesus' words stir them to anger. This love for appearances is what stands behind verse 44. You see in verse 44, the Pharisees were like unmarked graves, which people walked over without knowing it. People interacted with the Pharisees not even knowing how polluted and decaying and troubled they were. This group that had improved upon the ceremonial cleanliness actually was making people dirty around them because of what was coming out of them. They were hurting other people, polluting other people. They loved appearances more than the way things truly are. I see that in myself. We, we value our own reputations. We're afraid of being embarrassed. We're afraid to confess. What will they think of me? Afraid to be honest. Do you see that in yourself? When you're having a rough day, is it better to walk in the light of God's grace and his mercy, confessing your sin, clinging to his hope? Is it better to be there or is it better to hide and create an appearance so that somebody else can have a good thought of who you are? Your status can be built up for the sake of someone else's opinion. Which is better? I submit to you it's better to live in God's light, in his truth, in his love. Lord, teach us integrity. Teach us. And so people of integrity love the Lord. They love truth. And finally, people of integrity love people. They love people sincerely from the heart. And this shapes integrity. Actually, loving others helps form integrity in us. It puts our love for God and our love for truth into practice. When God gives us a real live human to love, we have, we're forced to square up with our words and our beliefs and live them out, are we not? Especially a real live human who's hard to love, who's insulted you, who's sinned against you. We're forced to live out whether we believe what we've said or not. So do I believe that following Jesus means denying myself and taking up my cross daily? even when my reputation is on the line, even when there's a sacrifice to be made. Do I believe that? Loving people is like the testing grounds for integrity. Do I believe that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, even when I'm faced with the opportunity to share that news? Do I believe that the church, that we together are an outpost of hope and justice and generosity for those who are hurting. Is that what the church is? A hope. Do I believe that even when it steps in and interrupts our agendas? Loving people with compassion, with truth, with courage, with grace. Loving people develops integrity because we're forced to match our inside and our outside. And so do we love people? Do we love people? The contrast here and what we see if we took time to unpack the text is developing hypocrisy, we do that by loving ourselves more than others. And when we put ourselves first, it, it just naturally develops a hypocrisy in us, especially if we call ourselves a disciple of Jesus. We see it in verse 42 when the Pharisees try to make themselves look good, ex 
um, by seeking attention in the synagogues and the marketplaces and seeking the best seats. We see this when the teachers make barriers to God rather than leading them in the truth. We see this uh, by, by the teachers of the law taking away the key to knowledge, not even knowing what it was. We could go on and on. And, and actually, there's a fascinating study in Galatians 2. I'd encourage you to do this on your own time. Read Peter and Paul's interaction in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. It's, it's putting flesh on what's happening in this passage. I, I'd encourage you to read it. But here's the bottom line as we need to move forward. Jesus says, be on your guard, church. Each one of us, be on our guard against hypocrisy. Not only because our souls are at risk, but because the very gospel is at stake too. The very mission of the church and the kingdom is at stake. How many people have been turned away from the church because of the hypocrisy they've seen within? How many people? Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. How many people have been turned away, not by our sin, right, by owning our sin. We're people, but by hypocrisy and pretending there is no sin. Or not seeking help for when we do have sin. What would it look like for us to be a church family who fleed hypocrisy? Who, who took a special note where the seeds of hypocrisy fell. And, and with brothers and sisters in the Lord, took uh, time to pull up those roots to take out those seeds, and to pursue wholeness, a singular faith, a God-centered integrity in all we say and do. Let's be a people who love God, who love truth, who love other people. Let's do that as a church at fleeing hypocrisy. That's what the Lord is calling us to do. And so there's a good chance that you're sitting there right now and you are aware of hypocrisy in your life on one level or another. Maybe the Lord has brought it in today. Maybe it's something you've been aware of for a long time. You're aware of a love for self that causes you to not love people well. You're aware of a love for status. You're aware of a love for a system. I would like us to take some time before communion to confess what the Lord is bringing to mind. There is only one who's lived completely free from hypocrisy. There is only one whose words and thoughts, whose hearts and actions were always and completely single-minded and pure and unified. And this one, our Lord Jesus, he gave his life that we might be forgiven of sin. He gave his life that the Holy Spirit might be poured out to strengthen us to flee from hypocrisy and to where we see it. Pull it up by the roots. He willingly gave his life, taking the punishment we deserve. And so if you know that this is an area of specific struggle, I'd encourage you to confess and pray. And, and even after, even as we move into communion, I'd encourage you to find someone that you trust and confess and pray. Because it's true that there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. That's true. But it's also true that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us from all unrighteousness and purify us and purify us. That's the Lord we serve. 
And so let's take some time to confess before we come to the table.